You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Picture a dark and musty theater, shrouded with flickering shadows from dim candlelight. It's spooky, sure. But it's also 1842 Boston, so everything's spooky. Don't freak out about it. On stage are two brothers, and one of them is in a trance, moaning. So, fine, a little spookier than average. But it's part and parcel with the show the crowd is there to see. A kind of show that doesn't exist anymore. Part magic act, part science lecture, part religious experience, part theater, and, maybe, part con job. One of the brothers, the older, more awake one, asks the audience if they have any requests, and a man in the crowd stands, raises his hand. Could he go to my house? He timidly requests. Surely, surely. The man is welcomed on stage and gives his address to the entranced brother, a fine, rich, resplendent house in Southend. The volunteer, it seems, is quite a gentleman. After a brief, silent search, the brother, his head not lifting, his hands not moving, announces firmly and flatly, I am there. The audience shifts audibly in their seats. There are whispers. The gentleman asks, Where? In your parlor. A look of dis-ease crosses the stony face of the gentleman for just the briefest of seconds before he manages to swallow it. Then tell me, what color is the wallpaper? Vermilion. The eyes of the crowd dart quickly back to the gentleman like they're following a tennis volley. He's right. Gasps usher out. And the table. How many chairs are at it? I see four. Aha! No. Five. Blast it. Right again. The clairvoyant tour continues in that style, through the living room, the dining room, the halls, and the stairs. At each location, the gentleman asks questions, and at each location, the brother answers. The audience is riveted. Then, finally, they arrive at the finale. The bedroom. The brother describes the sheets, the dressers, the end tables. Yes, 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 that's all right, the gentleman responds. But then he pulls out his curveball. Tell me, who do you see there in the bedroom? I see a young lady sitting on the bed before the table lamp. She is dressed in night clothes, a ruffled cap, a white gown. With this, the gentleman drops his guard. He is no longer skeptical, no longer nervous. He is only amazed. That woman you describe is my wife. And this is precisely the time she goes to bed. Astonishing. Then he asks, do you see anything else? No, I see someone else. You could hear a pin drop. A handsome young man. He's walking towards the woman on the bed. Now he's grasping her, and at that moment, the fine gentleman ran, panicked from the theater. Which, for the aspiring young scam artists in the room, is not a reaction you should be aiming for. You want to keep people around. Tell them things they'd like to hear. Ply them with flattering half-truths that keep them coming back. If you're running a scam, you don't want people angry or frightened or jealous. So the brothers messed up that night in Boston, 1842. If they were running a scam. But that's the question. Were they? Live from South by Southwest, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Okay, okay, that's not true. 
This was meant to be a live performance straight from South by Southwest, but even if you haven't heard of South by Southwest, you can probably surmise it was canceled. It was taken off the calendar pretty early, comparatively, before the NBA or Broadway or international travel. I'm sorely tempted to talk about the coronavirus, but I'm not sure what I could say that would be beneficial, especially since I'm recording this on Sunday, March 15th, and you won't be listening to it until the 24th at the earliest. Right now, I want to tell everyone to please stay inside. But I assume that message will be unignorably loud by the time you'd hear it. Still, on the off chance it hasn't resonated yet, please do stay inside. I've also been toying with the idea of telling a story to meet the moment, something about pandemic disease and how we came to understand it. But I'm already looking for escapes from that conversation. 80% of the media I'm taking in right now is about COVID-19, and so is 95% of my inner monologue. So instead, I'm going to give you the story I was going to tell at South by Southwest. It's light, it's interesting, it's the sort of thing that I think most of you come to the constant for. Before we get back to it, though, uh, I do have something to ask. I feel very sheepish about it, ghoulish about it, almost. Uh, Usually at the end of the show, I ask that if you want to support me, you can go to patreon.com slash the constant to become a subscriber. Instead, I'm saying that now. If you can, go to patreon.com slash the constant to support us. I really want to emphasize, though, that if you can part. By the time you're listening to this, you might have a better idea of how rough the next couple of months might be on you or the people important to you. If not, think about it. Make sure you're safe and comfortable before you start spending your hard-earned money encouraging me to mispronounce names at you every two weeks. And even if you say, yeah, I can afford that, think again about everybody else who could use that support. Right now, as I'm recording this, I know oodles of people in the service and entertainment industries who are feeling very worried. The people who bring you food and drinks or make you laugh and cry, they're already hurting. If you can, please look into where you might be able to help them. Many more will need that help in the coming weeks, much more so than I do. And while I have some strained belief that the state will get its act together eventually, I'm not nearly so optimistic that it'll be on time. So think first about what you need, and the people you love, and the people who are really at risk. Then, and and only then, if you've got something extra you'd like to use to support the making of this show, go to patreon.com slash the constant. And whatever you decide to do, For whomever you decide to do it, thank you. All right. I'm sorry to have taken so much time on that. Uh, Let's just pretend for a little while that we're in a room together and that I can tell you this story the way I wanted to. Ready? Three, two, one. Live from South by Southwest, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. On each episode, we look at some bad idea, some mistaken belief, some faulty invention or disastrous misadventure from the past. It is a very broad portfolio. Nobody ever ran out of material cataloging human error. But it's surprising the ways in which you have to be careful not to repeat yourself. Because there are these flashpoints, certain events, places, objects, and times that seem to breed fallacies over and over again. And there are people like that, too. People like Pliny the Elder, or the physician Galen, or the physician Hippocrates, or the physician Paracelsus, or really just a lot of physicians. The unofficial catchphrase of this podcast has become fucking Aristotle, because Jesus, horseface Christ, Aristotle, would you shut up for a second? Women have fewer teeth than men? Where did you... How do you even... Anyway, I am not here to talk about Aristotle. I don't think, at least. That's not a promise, because the dude has a tendency to party crash. The wise and prudent organizers of this conference, in a rare lapse of those otherwise dominant character traits, invited me here to speak to you, which put me in a pickle, the brine of which is becoming quite familiar. I have been mistaken, once more, for some sort of authority or expert, when I am, if anything, the opposite of those. And yet, rather than bow out gracefully, I again decided to ride the opportunity out and see what happens. 
So I find myself in a room full of wonderful people. Some of you are educators. Some of you are innovators. Some of you are edifiers. And some of you, I'm not naming names, just mathematically speaking, some of you are snake oil salesmen. And for those who fall into that latter category, I have a story about one of your own. A figure even more frequently mistaken than Aristotle, who has come up time and again in my research. I've come to think of him as the Forrest Gump of 19th century pseudoscience. And like a box of chocolates, his life defies easy similes. He is a man who lived a life of extraordinary wrong. And, paradoxically, I think that means he has something important to teach us. This week's episode, Light and Shadow in American Life. His name was Robert Hannum Collier, but you know him as the older, non-hypnotized brother from that 1842 Boston stage show slash cuckold reveal party. Not much is known of Collier's early life, but by all indications he was born in 1814 on the English Channel Isle of Jersey. He was the firstborn child of Robert Mitchell Collier, a grocer, and Anne Elizabeth Dujardin, who went on to have 12 other children. When he was 17, he came to Paris, and it is there that he shook hands with the first infamous celebrity of his long and storied career, studying with a man by the name of Johann Spurzheim. Spurzheim was himself a student of a German doctor named Franz Josef Gall. Both Gall and Spurzheim had early interests in an ancient pseudoscience known as physiognomy. Physiognomy is, in short, the notion that one's physical appearance, and especially their face, is illustrative of their inner character, personality, temperament, and intellect. Particularly, one's essence or soul could be seen to express itself in the face by what animal it most resembled. A king's bravery and nobility could be easily ascertained at a glance, since he looked a bit like a lion if you squinted. A woman might be a great singer because of her nightingale-like features, a servant loyal on account of his dog face. There were risible, bull-headed farmers, stubborn, pig-headed blacksmiths, and mousy housekeepers. But it wasn't only animal aspects that physiognomy looked at. It also saw more general human features as indicative of certain things. The classy and intelligent people were highbrow, and their tacky and curious opposites, the lowbrow. Fatheads were mean, thickheads were stupid, and baby faces were innocent. Are you beginning to catch that physiognomy had a bit of a cultural influence? The idea goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and was carried on into Western tradition via... Oh, hey! Look what the cat face dragged in. It's fucking Aristotle. Well, that didn't take long. The version of physiognomy described by Aristotle carried up through the Middle Ages, but lost favor during the Renaissance when anatomists, artists, physicians, and other students of the human form began to poo-poo the whole thing. But in the 18th century, physiognomy came roaring back under the power of Johann Lavater, a Swiss poet and philosopher who published Physiognomische Fragmente in 1778. The chief appeal of Physiognomische was less its argument and more its very entertaining woodcut illustrations of faces and animals, which are, I have to say, very fun. Through Lavater's work, physiognomy came sprinting back to the fore of culture and science. Some of that popularity, I think, had to stem from its narrative convenience. Great writers like Dickens, Poe, Wilde, and the Brontes turned to physiognomic descriptions of their characters again and again. But how much of that is out of sincere belief, and how much is them saying, boy, that is a very useful literary device, is impossible to suss out. Franz Josef Gall was taken by Lavater's physiognomy when he was a young man at the University of Strasbourg, but the comparing faces to animals thing didn't jive with his observations. Instead, Gall initially thought he saw a connection between intelligence and the degree to which a person's eyes bulged. After matriculating in Vienna, he worked at an asylum, where he cataloged still more anecdotal correlations between the psyche and the shape of the head. Gall's views of his mental patients were condescending, and his takes on his fellow classmates in Vienna and Strasbourg were frequently petty or jealous or both, but taken together, they formed a new theory of the mind, a more precise and scientific sort of physiognomy for the modern age. Gall's hypothesis was that the brain was made up of a bunch of small, 
discrete areas, each of which controlled or dictated some part of human character or intellect. Those areas of the brain swelled based on the overall strengths of an individual's mental makeup, and that brain swelling caused the skull to bow and bubble up beneath the stress of the mind. According to Gall, you couldn't look somebody in the face and immediately discern some broad personality type based on what animal they resembled. But if you could feel about their skulls, you could make detailed, intimate, accurate assessments of their entire internal life. He called this new science... Anybody? Anybody? I don't have an audience, so you got to call it out for me. Thank you. Nope, not phrenology. Gall called his science cranioscopy. His number one disciple, Johann Spurzheim, who helped him spread the idea through public lectures across Europe before he parted ways with his mentor and branched out on his own, renamed Gall's cranioscopy to the term it's known by today, phrenology. With cranioscopy, Gall claimed to have located 27 separate nodes in the brain, each responsible for some trait like inhibition, self-esteem, combativeness, or secretiveness. To these, Spurzheim's phrenology added six more, bringing the number of features up to a grand total of 33, including destructiveness and covetousness. Gall was, in spite of being almost totally wrong, a scientist of the old, sober order, cloistered, academic, cautious. Spurzheim, by contrast, was a showman. And when he struck out on his own, he brought pizzazz to phrenology, giving lectures and skull readings across England and America. Our man, Robert Hannum Collier, was definitely cut in Spurzheim's mold. But before we get to his own showbiz turn, we've got to make another stop on his formative journey. After spending time studying with Spurzheim in 1831, Collier moved to England and studied at London University under another infamous shaper of 19th century pseudoscience, John Eliotson. At the time Collier was under his tutelage, Eliotson was known chiefly for being a skilled clinician, said to be able to diagnose any patient who walked through his door, but also said to favor particularly frightening and extreme treatments for those patients. In the early to mid-1830s, he was a proponent of what was called heroic medicine, a severe form of humorism that called for frightening levels of bloodletting and diuretics. His students at the time told patients that they should absolutely go to Elliotson for diagnosis, but absolutely avoid him for treatment. Collier studied under Elliotson until 1835, a time during which Elliotson was also defined by his relationship to Robert Liston his arch-nemesis. Liston has absolutely nothing to offer, the larger story, but I have been looking for a reason to tell one possibly apocryphal anecdote about him for a while now, so here we are. Liston was known as the fastest knife in the West End, a surgeon trained at the University of Edinburgh during the time before either antiseptic or anesthetic. It was imperative to the survival of Liston's patients that he moved quickly. Liston could amputate a leg in two and a half minutes. And he did, many times. Once, in particular, he managed to beat his own record, removing a patient's leg in less than two and a half minutes. But not only that, he also managed, in that same time, to cut off two of his assistant's fingers and threw the coat of a visiting spectator. The patient and the assistant both died of gangrene, and the visitor was so frightened that he had a heart attack and died on the spot. As the surgeon, anesthetist, and writer Robert Gordon put it in his 1983 book, Great Medical Disasters, it is the only operation in history with a 300% mortality rate. Back to Collier. In 1836, he left London for America, landing in New York City in June of 1836 with a lecture show called The Wonders of the Microscopic World. Soon enough, he hit upon a more lucrative line. He heard about his old teacher Spurzheim's phrenology lectures and decided he should try following in his footsteps. Mid-19th century America was a wacky place for, uh, well, uh, everything. The lines between entertainment, science, medicine, and religion were hopelessly blurred. 
the same tent tours that brought new religious revivals, burlesques, circuses, traveling theater troops, and medicine shows also brought fantastical scientific demonstrations that carried the same carnival barker flair. Phrenology shows became a popular mainstay throughout the whole United States. So popular, in fact, that Collier often faced stiff competition within his own lane. So he worked out a fresh angle to get one up on his peers. He would provide his lectures for free to the public and make his nut doing private readings at his hotel after the show. The private events looked a lot like palm reading, because that's pretty much precisely what they were. But instead of offering up your hand to a fortune teller, you were offering up your head to a doctor. If, that is, Collier was a doctor. He didn't finish his studies in Paris or London, and while he signed up for medical classes at Berkshire Medical in 1839, there's no paper trail to say he ever became an MD. But he did definitely call himself doctor. And really, in the 1830s, what is the difference? He was just feeling skull bumps anyway. Before whatever continuing education he received at Berkshire, Collier spent three years giving his phrenology demonstrations, private phrenology readings, and publishing a phrenology book and magazine. He traveled the East Coast, everywhere from Providence to Boston to Philly to Baltimore to D.C., all points in between. During this time, he also wrote the book that gives us this episode's title, Lights and Shadows in American Life. Lights and Shadows was a Britain's description of the rough-and-tumble world of the United States and of its people, whom Collier made out as dull, stupid, corrupt, and immoral. He intended the book to be for British audiences only, but plenty of copies were sold on this side of the pond, where it unsurprisingly made Collier very, very few friends. Within a year of publishing, Collier was telling his angry American audiences that the book was a fake made up by some enemy to tarnish his reputation. Tellingly, though, when Collier returned to England in 1844, where the book was a hit, he took full credit for it. At any rate, it was during this period of lectures and writing that Collier met our next famous 19th century celebrity, Captain Frederick Muriot. Muriot was an officer in the Royal British Navy, serving in both the Napoleonic Wars and the War of 1812. But he's best known for... Well, that really depends on who you are. After his military service, he became a novelist. Most of his books were about sailing and sailors, including the semi-autobiographical Mr. Midshipman Easy and his spooky Flying Dutchman-inspired The Phantom Ship. Later in life, he began focusing on children's novels, most famously The Children of the New Forest. But if you're a sailor yourself, you might better know Muriot as the inventor of Muriot's Code, the system of communicating by flags still used by mariners today. Collier met Muriot in Louisville, Kentucky in September of 1838, when the pseudoscientist discovered the author in bed with his wife. Hey, just like that seance! Collier was suspicious of his wife's fidelity because he had read her skull and came away worried that she had an overdeveloped bump of amativeness, which is to say, she had the horny brain. So on that faded night in Louisville, he told her he would be away until morning and then proceeded to hide under the bed. At one in the morning, his phrenological fears were proved correct. In walked Mrs. Collier and the captain, both in their nightshirts. After waiting a few very fascinating minutes, to be sure, Collier said, he sprung from underneath the mattress screaming, Fire! Rape! Treason! Muriat stumbled into an excuse about calling on the good woman Collier to treat a sprain. Collier seems to have been too smart for that line, but somehow the two managed to defuse the spat without firearms, which is a pretty impressive show of restraint for the time. Once the Louisville brouhaha blew over, and he made another leg of lectures through Saratoga Springs and Hartford, Connecticut, Collier finally arrived at Berkshire Medical for his continuing education, where he may, or may not, have become a doctor. The reason I keep harping on Berkshire Medical is because Collier's time there represents one possible explanation for how his career took its next turn. In October of 1839, while at Berkshire, Collier claims he was magnetized by a professor of Materia Medica and Medical Botany, 
Charles Harley Cleveland. To those of you not curiously versed in 19th century science, that word, magnetized, might seem confusing. To those of you, on the other hand, who followed me down the rabbit hole before, you know exactly what it means and are probably sick of hearing about it. There are plenty of medical procedures, both legitimate and illegitimate, that use magnets. But if somebody is talking about magnetizing in the 1800s, especially if they're rolling around America giving spectacular stage demonstrations, you can bet your sweet bippy that they mean animal magnetism, i.e. mesmerism. Possibly the most important bad idea of the whole enlightenment. We'll give it a brief history after this break. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you're feeling alone or anxious or like you just need someone to help you through things, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to support you. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs, whether that means depression, anxiety, grief, even sleep troubles. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional, licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile app, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. And by The Great Courses Plus. They say knowledge is power. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus, we get to tap into this power with just a click. Their streaming service unlocks unlimited access to objective, reliable, fascinating information on virtually any subject. Learn from the brightest minds around the world, benefiting from their years of experience and unique insight to transform from a student into a master. With over 40,000 five-star reviews, you're guaranteed to find compelling content on The Great Courses Plus. If you're a fan of The Constant, you're bound to enjoy The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Professor Mark Stoller takes you from the Revolutionary War to the Cold War, analyzing the seductive narratives that have shaped America's vision of itself even when that vision has deviated from the facts. Join me and thousands of other learners and sign up for The Great Courses Plus. For a limited time only, my listeners will get unlimited access completely free for an entire month. So don't wait. Sign up today. Simply use my special URL, thegreatcoursespluscom slash the constant. Again, for a free month of unlimited access, Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash theconstant. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the abridged version. Franz Mesmer, Austrian physician, hears about an astronomer by the unfortunate name of Hell who's taken to curing the sick by running magnets over them. Mesmer starts experimenting with Hell's procedure and soon discovers that he can get the same results without the magnets, just by staring deeply into a subject's eyes, playing some creepy music, and running his hands over them. From this, he concludes that he has found the true Elan Vital, the fluid agent of life, animal magnetism. Mesmer starts using animal magnetism to treat any and every illness, psychological and physiological, and eventually happens upon Maria Teresia von Paradise, a 17-year-old blind piano prodigy and daughter of the vassal of the Empress, who sends her to live with Mesmer for personalized care. A few months later, it suddenly dawns on him that leaving his beautiful blind teenage daughter to be whispered at and touched in dark rooms by a strange man in a loveless marriage, who also, it should be said, only wore purple velvet, maybe wasn't as good an idea as it seemed. So he retrieved Maria from Mesmer and had the magnetist boot kicked out of Austria. Mesmer then ended up in Paris, where he and his purple velvet frocks got to work, <clears throat> treating the women of France, including Queen Marie Antoinette. King Louis set him up with a monthly annuity before it suddenly dawned on him that leaving his beautiful royal wife to be whispered at and touched in dark rooms by a strange man in an estranged marriage who also, it should be said one more time just to drive the point home, only wore purple velvet, maybe wasn't as good an idea as it seemed. So, Louis formed a commission to examine Mesmer's technique, the members of which included Joseph Ignace Guillotine, chemist Antoine Lavoisier, and polymath Benjamin Franklin. In the course of its investigation, the group invented blind experiments, discovered the placebo effect, and totally demolished Mesmer and animal magnetism. Franz Mesmer left France in shame, just in time to avoid getting his head cut off by the guillotine, which is better than you can say for Lavoisier, and lived out the rest of his life in obscurity. But the science of mesmerism didn't go as quietly as its namesake. A Frenchman by the name of Pusigur took up the mantle and transformed animal magnetism into something that sounds even more like hypnosis than the original product. His subjects would enter a deep, sleep-like trance from which they would remember nothing, but would take suggestions and even become impervious to pain. And if you're now wondering, wait, is hypnosis bullshit too? Then, good question. Moving on. Pissiger's version of animal magnetism, which he called somnambulism, became the dominant form of mesmerism and made its way around the Western world. In America, the first and most prominent mesmerism advocate was Charles Poyen, who set the tone for everybody who followed by creating grand and astounding mesmerism performances, which included elements of lecture and experiment, but also healings, fortune-telling, even clairvoyance and talking to the dead. Compared to animal magnetism, phrenology shows were bland and boring. So, in 1840, our man Robert Hannum Collier made the leap, changing his tour from bump reading to hypnotizing. I said that Collier's classes at Berkshire constituted one way he could have learned about mesmerism, and that sequence of events getting magnetized by Professor Cleveland is how Collier said things went. But there's some reason to be skeptical of that, because Charles Poyen, the guy who brought animal magnetism to America, had an English counterpart, and his name was Dr. John Elliotson, the same John Elliotson that trained Collier in London. It would be a pretty big coincidence if Collier just happened to stumble upon mesmerism separately from his British mentor, but it's not impossible. Elliotson was aware of animal magnetism by the late 1820s, but he doesn't seem to have become a booster until viewing a demonstration by a French magnetist named Senevoy in 1837. After that, Elliotson jumped into mesmerism hard. Most infamously, he experimented on Elizabeth and Jane Oakey, two teenage sisters suffering from epilepsy. In theory, Elliotson began treating them in April of 1837. But judging by the historical record and Elliotson's own writings, he was more interested in using them as guinea pigs and exhibits. He said both sisters were highly suggestible, but especially the older girl, Elizabeth, 17, 
who he would entrance before threading a needle through her neck before audiences. Elliotson was an established and credible medical doctor, yet his public displays of Elizabeth were very much magic acts. He would mesmerize Elizabeth to see through her fingers. He would touch Jane and ask her sister to describe where. He would even use Elizabeth as a so-called medical clairvoyant, diagnosing the illnesses and injuries of both his lecture crowds and the hospital mortuary. That is, until Thomas Wackley came around. Wackley founded the Lancet Medical Journal in 1823 and quickly developed a reputation as an iconoclastic medical reformer who would brook no fools or nonsense. By the time he took on Elliotson, he was also a member of the English Parliament for Finsbury. And he was a medical coroner and social crusader, taking up the cause of universal suffrage, against flogging, and against the adulteration of food and coffee. In August of 1838, Wackley tested the powers of the Oakey sisters in a series of experiments very much like the ones that Ben Franklin and Lavoisier had used to discredit Mesmer. And, as in that case, he managed to show that mesmerism was bunko. The University of London responded by barring the practice in its hospitals, and so Elliotson resigned. In the meantime, Collier was putting on his own mesmeric sideshows in the States, with the help of his brother Freddie. Together, they put on demonstrations which included diagnosing and treating illness, clairvoyant remote viewings, and all manner of hypnotic parlor tricks. The real showstopper was when Robert would put an audience member into a trance and then pull out his teeth live on stage. And I want to tell you that he only removed teeth that needed it. I want to tell you that so very, very much. But that would require us to believe Robert Hannum Collier had the know-how to separate the good teeth from the bad. And, friends, I have doubts. Terrible, terrible doubts. The next couple of years, between 1840 and 1842, are full of highs and lows. When Collier's show goes well, it's a hit. But when it goes poorly, he's seen as a fraud. On account of, well, you know. In December of 1841, he was positively drummed out of Baltimore for what the Globe described as humbuggery. Still, his successes, when there were successes, were impressive, particularly given that he wasn't actually, like, doing anything. Three months before the Baltimore affair, he mesmerized a child so that surgeons could remove his eye. It was said the child felt no pain. Although, in an afterthought, the papers did wonder if the morphine might have played a part. Hmm, could be. It was also in this period of time that Collier became entwined with three more important names. The first was a cat called Charles Dickens. Collier became pen pals with the great English writer somewhere towards the end of 1841 or beginning of 1842. The goal of these correspondences seems to have been flatly opportunistic. Collier got Dickens to admit the power of mesmerism, which he then used to bolster his own reputation and to cast Dickens as a supporter. Dickens promised that the next time he was in America, he'd look Collier up and get a demonstration, but that never happened. In 1843, Collier became interested in William Miller. Miller was a farmer and veteran of the War of 1812. His experience in battle filled him with deep existential crisis, which tore him between his Baptist upbringing and deism, basically the belief that God served as a prime mover, setting the universe in motion and then sitting back. When Miller was young, he'd been turned onto deism by readings of Voltaire, Thomas Paine, and David Hume. But after the horrors of war, he was shaken. He recorded that while greatly outnumbered at the Battle of Plattsburgh, a rocket exploded near him, killing or wounding the soldiers around. But Miller was completely, and to him, miraculously spared. After that, he could no longer stomach the idea that God was uninvolved in human events. God had, after all, saved him and delivered his greatly underpowered army from harm. Yet he still found the deistic doubt of Hume and Voltaire everywhere. He couldn't go back to the Baptist faith he'd rejected without squaring the circle of rationalism with the supposedly inerrant text of the Bible. So he began going through the good book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, trying to put together a holistic, non-contradictory understanding of scripture. In so doing, he determined that the apocalypse was fast upon him. In 1818, he concluded, based on some very suspect number crunching, that the second coming would begin in 1843. He preached to that effect from 1831 onwards. At first, he had little impact. But as 1843 approached, his message gained a good bit of gravity. 
He began publishing a newsletter called The Signs of the Times in 1840, which gained popular traction. Soon, thousands upon thousands of Millerites were giving up their possessions, moving to be nearer to the man, and waiting for the end times, which Miller had by then pinpointed to somewhere between March 21, 1843 and March 21, 1844. When that window closed without incident, a new date was chosen, April 18th. But the sun set on the 18th and rose on the 19th again unceremoniously. Finally, with the help of Samuel Snow, a new last day was discovered, based on even more contorted logic. The world would end on October 22, 1844. For real this time. Scores of adherents gathered in an increasing panic in the weeks leading up to October 22nd. They waited with both their loved ones and their breath held tight to the chest. When the seals failed to be torn and the horns failed to blow, the Millerites were crestfallen. The great disappointment, as October 22, 1844 came to be known, led to a fragmented search through the wilderness for some explanation. Some gave up on the idea entirely. Others continued setting dates which passed without incident, including the folks who became the Advent Christian Church and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Some said that the world had in fact ended, but only the spiritual world, for now. They became the Shakers. And the rest came to a conclusion that Miller himself eventually endorsed, that on October 22nd, the end times had begun, but only in heaven, where the sanctuary had been cleansed. These believers became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But before the Great Disappointment, Collier came to see the Millerites. I'm not sure what for. He doesn't seem to have been a believer or even curious in a spiritual sense, but he was certainly curious in some other sense. Maybe he thought, as many thought, that Miller himself was some sort of mesmerist who was hypnotizing his devotees. There were plenty of non-believers who found the Millerites fascinating, just like Collier. Here were tens of thousands of people giving up their homes, their livelihoods, their possessions, even their families, on the word of a farmer. However you cut it, something interesting was going on. One of the fascinated was Edgar Allan Poe who met Collier at Miller's revival meetings in the spring of 1843. Seemingly, Poe and Collier got along famously, and Collier gave Poe a book entitled Facts in Mesmerism, which included a good deal of material about his own work. The accounts of mesmerists stoked Poe's imagination, which sent him to work. At the time, Poe was not just a poet and fiction writer, but also a great purveyor of newspaper hoaxes. And it's in that genre that Poe wrote about mesmerism. The first hoax was entitled Mesmeric Revelation. It was laid out as a factual article explaining the latest advancement in the pseudoscience. In it, he describes an invalid who, when mesmerized, became capable of explaining all the mysteries of the universe, the cosmos, God, existence, immortality, you name it. When the mesmerist brought the invalid out of his state, he realized his subject had died already and that the whole of their enlightened conversation had happened from beyond the grave. It was such a successful hoax that it was reprinted by the American Phrenological Journal. Soon after, Poe wrote a second mesmeric hoax entitled The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar. Rather than a story of a man hypnotized as he died, M. Valdemar was hypnotized to prevent his death. At the moment of his last breath, he is hypnotized and then remains a stationary undead body, able to answer questions even without breath. After seven months, Valdemar's disembodied voice begins shouting to be either reawoken or put to eternal sleep. The mesmerist wakes him, and Valdemar's body instantaneously decomposes into, quote, detestable putrescence. For months after its publication, people debated whether the facts in the case of M. Valdemar were legit or not. Making the case that it was a true story, Robert Collier stepped forward, writing publicly to Poe that he himself had managed to, quote, restore to active animation a person who died. It turned out that he had only managed to wake a drunk. But in response, Poe admitted that the Valdemar case was a fraud, embarrassing Collier in front of the world. By then, though, Collier was well past mesmerism. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Years before Poe's hoaxes, sometime just before they met milling about the Millerites, Collier made a discovery of his own. Up until then, he'd been following in the footsteps of others, the phrenologists and mesmerists who cut a path for him. But during one of his mesmerism shows, in 1842, his expertise in the older hokum was married to the new. According to Collier, he was having no luck magnetizing an especially stubborn subject when a member of the audience shouted out that Collier should try to hit him right in the benevolence. Benevolence was one of the phrenological organs that Gall had discovered, and on which Collier had done his previous skull-bump reading work. Somehow, though, it had never before occurred to him to apply his mesmerism to his phrenology. Collier took the heckler's advice and tried to directly mesmerize the mulish patient's benevolence center. Instantly, the subject changed. The obstinance evaporated, and the magnetism was free to do its work. Collier named this new technique phrenomagnetism, and it seemed from the very start like an incredibly successful merger. By magnetizing specific organs of the brain, Collier was able to validate the phrenological charts of his mentor Spurzheim, and at the same time, provide proof that magnetism was a true force of nature, some kind of vital force, the electric energy of life and intelligence itself. Collier was collecting what seemed like irrefutable evidence of both his pseudoscientific studies in one fell swoop. Not only that, but because this phrenomagnetism was so surgical, Collier and a burgeoning field of fellow phrenomagnetists were able to more finely subdivide the brain into more and more specific organs. The brain did so many things, after all, and nearly every one of its qualities must have its own nub, too small to be felt on the skull, but well within the detective power of phrenomagnetism. Soon, there were supposedly organs discovered for sarcasm, boasting, pet-loving, proper names, even for the desire to see ancient places. Most of these were discovered by Collier's rivals, particularly a Methodist preacher and abolitionist named Leroy Sunderland, who especially drew Collier's ire. Collier had invented a new science that exposed not only the workings of the mind, but the nature of life itself. Yet Sunderland, with his never-ending list of new organs, was stealing all the thunder. Soon enough, Collier turned on his own discovery. He denounced phrenomagnetism, even while at the same time he sought to make sure everybody knew that he had been the one to create it. He took to the papers to attack Leroy Sunderland, and I gotta say, he did a hell of a job. He wrote in 1843, This Leroy Sunderland has new organs for love of cold water, love of strong drink, Organs of suavity, organs of molasses and water, gin slings, hot whiskey punches, organs for eating bologna sausages, organs for sucking molasses, mush, and milk, organs for kicking football, for knocking down watchmen, organs for kissing women, organs for jealousy, organs for swindling the public out of their money, organs for claiming certain discoveries in mesmerism that that individual never thought of, and etc. and etc. Pretty good, Rob. If only he displayed the same level of scrutiny to things he did believe in. Collier was free to attack phrenomagnetism because by then he'd moved on to another new science. Just four years earlier, Louis Daguerre had announced to the world a new process, a way to produce clear photographic images with only a few minutes of exposure. It was the first time that most of the world had ever seen a photograph at all, let alone a good one. And like any amazing discovery, it caused people to wonder what other hidden wonders might be next. For Robert Hannum Collier, the invention of photography put a new explanation for mesmerism in mind. 
The clairvoyance he'd shown off, like when his brother had exposed the cheating Boston housewife, was actually a sort of telepathy, as were all the effects of animal magnetism. The mind of the magnetized became like a photographic film onto which the thoughts and impressions of others could be exposed. He called this new theory psychography, and to prove it, he added a new apparatus to his act, something that couldn't be explained by either phrenology, magnetism, or even phrenomagnetism. A bowl of molasses. The bowl of molasses was set on a table, center stage, with two chairs across from one another. At one chair would sit Collier's magnetized assistant. Sometimes this was his brother, but he also had several young women at various points and at least one other man named Charles Snyder, who we'll get back to shortly. At the other chair would sit a volunteer from the audience who would stare into the molasses with some image, memory, or thought strongly in mind. Then, the somnambulized assistant would also stare into the molasses and describe the projection of the volunteer exactly. Psychography seemed very impressive. But troubles were mounting for Collier. He'd publicly called out phrenology and phrenomagnetism and several important practitioners by name, and they came back for blood. Mesmerists were always susceptible to accusations of impropriety, all the way back to Franz Mesmer himself, who'd been banished from Vienna based on innuendo about his relationship with Maria Theresia von Paradise. Mesmerists had distressingly intimate relationships with their patients. They whispered in their ears, stared deep into their eyes, and made tickly, glancing touches about their bodies. It was an uneasy pushing of 19th century prudery. Not to mention that the whole business of animal magnetism was about suggestion and control. Popular stories about mesmerism, Edgar Allan Poe aside, tended to center on suave hypnotists bilking men out of their money and women out of their virtue. In The Magnet, Leroy Sunderland shot back at Collier, not with clever prose, but with accusations of fraud, profanity, and cruelty. Sunderland claimed that he had affidavits from Collier's victims, including one from a young woman who Sunderland implied Collier had molested while magnetized. Orson Squire Fowler, the editor of the American Phrenological Journal, also attacked Collier as morally destitute. Collier sued Fowler and the journal for libel, so Fowler advertised widely and publicly for witnesses to testify to Collier's immoralities, seductions, and adulteries. Finally, out came Charles Snyder, one of the mesmerized molasses lookers, who publicly declared Collier had paid him to fake the whole thing. The writing was on the wall. Even Dr. John Elliotson, who Collier had studied under in England, turned against him. After all, by that time, Elliotson was the editor of The Zoist, a periodical focused on phrenomagnetism. After the rug was pulled out, Collier went on to have a long series of other careers, most of them less sensational than the pseudosciences. He practiced medicine, both in America, Mexico, and back on the island of Jersey. He patented a number of inventions, including a hydroelectric generator, a way of crushing quartz, a breech-loading cannon, an iron alloy for the bottoms of ships, several new kinds of paper, maybe, a new way of making sugar, and on and on. Most of these mm, were probably not very good. He also continued a career as a showman, displaying recreations of famous Renaissance portraits at theaters across America and England, only made up of naked people. Collier claimed the purpose of these expositions was high art, but several times the show was closed down as pornography, and on May 23, 1848, the model playing Mars stepped on Venus's toes, starting a fight that spread through the rest of the cast, into the audience, and spilled out of the theater. As the years went by, Collier seems to have applied himself to more and more pragmatic constructions. Most of his latter inventions had to do with plants, millery, and cultivation, machines for treating flax or cleaning cotton. But his desire for something grander never quite left. Over the decades, when some new advancement in spiritualism or automatic writing or seances came up, Collier would write in to this newspaper or that, weighing in with the expertise of a man who had discovered the true secrets of the universe, at least four times. He even claimed to have discovered anesthetic, 
which itself was viewed as a kind of quackery and magic for a while, but that's a story for a different time. Throughout the 1860s and 70s, a man by the name of Henry Slade ran a supernatural con job through England and the American East Coast. Slade's claim was that he could communicate with the dead. At his seances, he would place a chalkboard and piece of chalk under a table. Then, he and his audience would sit at it, join hands, and wait for a message to appear. Slade's trick wasn't especially artful. He had a number of identical slates on which he'd have things pre-written that he could switch out for the blank one with his feet. And apparently, he even had some skill for writing with his toes. In 1872, he was caught scrolling words that way several times in New York. So, he fled to London, where he was again caught in 1876. The British zoologist Ray Lancaster grabbed up one of the hidden chalkboards from under the table before the seance was to begin and exposed that the writing was already there. Slade was prosecuted and convicted of fraud, sentenced to three months prison time. On hearing about the sentence, Robert Hannum Collier wrote to London, defending Slade and his practice as legitimate based on his own experience with psychography. Slade managed to appeal his conviction on a technicality and fled back to America before he could be retried. But Collier's intervention did no one any favors, not Slade and certainly not the man himself. So why risk his tenuous reputation as a somewhat reformed roadshow barker to stand up for a fraud? To me, the answer seems simple enough. To find it, we only have to return to a dark and creepy theater in 1842 Boston, where Robert and his brother frightened a potential cuckold right out of the door. Henry Slade is the kind of con artist we tell most of our stories about. A bread-and-buttered Harold Hill type, slyly winking his way from one hoodwink to the next. But Robert Hannum Collier was a different type, both more fascinating and more common. Collier was the kind of trickster best adept at tricking himself. From phrenology to magnetism to phrenomagnetism to psychography, from Charles Dickens to Edgar Allan Poe, he managed to deceive others even as he deceived himself. The same can be said to some degree or another about most of the mesmerists and phrenologists of the 19th century. They dressed things up, they played loose with the facts, they even engaged in downright trickery. Yet all of those cut corners were in pursuit of what they assumed to be a more critical truth. And the legacies of their ideologies are complicated. Phrenology was used to expressly explain and bolster racist ideas from almost the beginning. Nearly any book on phrenology you can get your hands on is composed mainly of chapters about the moral and intellectual shortcomings of Africans, Asians, Jews, but also of Finns and the Irish and everybody. It was a science that you could transpose any prejudice upon safely and confidently. But it's not as if allopathic medicine and other mainstream science didn't suit the same purpose. And while neither mesmerism nor phrenology came out as more than fictions, how one was to know that in the 1840s isn't obvious. The competing theories of the mind were, in many ways, worse. Mesmerism, for all its shortcomings, was the first philosophy to recognize the unconscious and subconscious minds. And the phrenologists were the first Westerners to put the functions of the mind in physical, biological, neurological terms. The truth is, there is not now, nor has there ever been, a clear delineation between the good ideas and the bad ones, between true science and false. Understanding is like one of Collier's late machines, decorticating the bark and husk of an idea until only the living, supple stem is left. Everybody is wrong, all the time, then and now. What separates Robert Hannum Collier from most of us is that he managed to make his errors extraordinary. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Vare, Kevin McLeod, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show, for supporting it, for sharing it with your friends. You can find us at constantpodcast.com. From there, you can then leap to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages and help us get the word out. 
I hope you enjoyed this slightly off-kilter episode. Right now, I want to spend the next couple months giving you stories that help escape the stress of these times. But if you want to hear more about disease somehow, I don't know. Let me know. Write me on Twitter. Tell me what sorts of stories you could use right now. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where from 1991 to 2009, Jerry Springer ended each broadcast with these simple, silly, and surprisingly sage words. Take care of yourselves and each other. This has been The Constant.